Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to World Affairs, a channel of the New Books Network podcast. I'm Sharika Crawford, your host. Today I'm here with Dr. Nadia Nur Hussain. She's an associate professor of English and Africana Studies at Johns Hopkins University. We're here to discuss her book, Black Land Imperial Ethiopianism in African America, published by Princeton University Press. Welcome to New Books and World Affairs, Nadia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for agreeing to the interview. Let us begin um, with you sharing a bit about your intellectual and professional background. Sure. Um, So I um, got my PhD at UC Berkeley in English. And um, when I applied to grad school, I really did not have any idea I would end up where I am now. Um, My plan was at that time to study uh, modern and contemporary American poetry. Um, I've always um, been interested in poetry. I uh, wrote poetry. It's kind of been on the back burner lately, um, but that's always been my passion. And um, so even from you know, my very early childhood, um, I knew poetry was what I was interested in. Um, and, uh, so I went off to grad school thinking that's what I would do. And, um, I did end up doing that for, uh, some time. I kind of was, uh, grappling for, um, a possible dissertation topic. Um, and I ended up, uh, uh, being interested in the topic that ended up uh, also being the, you know, my first book, um, which was um, uh, American poetry written uh, in dialect. So I was kind of <clears throat> interested in how writers chose to represent what they considered non-standard speech. Um, I also ended up sort of moving chronologically backward in terms of um, the period that interested me. So um, ever since uh, working on my dissertation, I've been focused mainly on late 19th, early 20th century uh, literature. Um, And um, so with that first book, I ended up writing about both um, white and black American writers um, but I, uh, 
became more and more interested in, for some reason, the uh, the writer Paul Lawrence Dunbar. He was sort of the center of that book. Um, I ended up actually writing, uh, I think, two chapters about him. Um, so um, I, I, there was one poem of his that I didn't end up writing about in that book called um, Ode to Ethiopia. And um, it was from that poem that I decided, okay, I think there might be the seed of another project here. Um, and that's what became my second book. Um, so yeah. No, that um, it's clear if when those of us who have had the opportunity to read your work um, that you you front and center a lot of um, poetry by well-known um kind of American writers, particularly African-American writers, but also American writers at large, but um, also lesser known um, figures, at least for those of us who don't um, study poetry or, or our literary um, studies background. You know, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, you know, he's such a pivotal figure when you think about 20th century African-American literature. And and it's clear from your, your reading of him and your book that he, um, it makes sense that he drew you to this topic. And for our listeners um, who are not familiar yet with your book, um, how how might you describe um, the late 19th into the 20th century engagement, cultural and literary and intellectual engagement from African-Americans um, to Ethiopia at a, at a pivotal time in its own history? Yeah. So, um, uh, as I said, I kind of began with this textual, you know, prompt of um, Dunbar's poem. But um, when I started thinking about how he was talking about Ethiopia, um, I realized, well, you know, you see this a lot in um, just African American literature in general. These references to Ethiopia, um, which a lot of people have looked at as um, basically abstractions as, as kind of um, ways of talking about the race generally or um, ways of talking about Africa generally. Um, and so um, I wanted to kind of think about, well, what specifically was happening um, when, you know, for example, Dunbar was writing his poem, what could he have been responding to in, um, <clears throat> in world history and, um, what might he have known about a the specific country of Ethiopia? What did Ethiopia mean to him concretely? Um, and so that was um, one of the driving questions behind the book was to think about, <clears throat> well, you know, what is happening in late 19th century um, uh, world history? What, what's happening in Ethiopian military history? Um, one of the uh, battles that I talk about um, period, you know, throughout the book um, is the Battle of Adwa in 1896, which was for um, for the world, but you know, uh, um, especially for African Americans, a really um, important turning point in um, the uh, understanding of. Um, well, lots of things, but for example, this, uh, I mentioned, you know, this kind of, uh, reading of the battle as a kind of overturning of white supremacy of this ideology that, um, uh, um, 
you know, there is no such thing as black civilization, <laughs> you know? And so this is this kind of concrete example that a lot of people have talked about as this um, humiliating defeat of, um, that's the word a lot of people use, humiliating uh, defeat of, of Italian military forces um, trying to colonize uh, the country that was then known as Abyssinia. Um, and so uh, <clears throat> it, like I said, it became a kind of um, uh, important symbol for a lot of people of um, a black country defeating a white country, um, what Ethiopia um, could offer to um, black people around the world. One of the things that um, drew me to your your book, just looking at the title originally, was my own interest in this kind of um, long engagement that African-Americans, both elite and non-elite, have had with um, international spaces of um, black models of modernity or independence or freedom, whether we're talking about first Haiti and Liberia. Ethiopia being another example, and even Ghana later in the 20th century. And you do a really wonderful job um, for me as a historian um, who has to teach world history and teach this this period of uh, the age of modern imperialism. And in addition to kind of thinking of Ethiopia as a symbol um, for African Americans at that time, you point out, you know, they were a concrete people and, and it's a concrete place. But more importantly, you focus on this concept of a diasporic empire. And I was a, very appreciative of how you showcase that this was very complicated because, as you point out, um, the Battle of Ajwa is something that in world history we celebrate as the defeat of white supremacy. Um, look at Ethiopia, Ethiopia being one of two places that wasn't colonized during this period of European expansionism. Um, and yet you point out that there's this also this imperial project happening within the country of Ethiopia that may or may not be fully appreciated Um you know, by the African-American community that's engaging with this concept of Ethiopia over the latter part of the 19th um, into the, the 20th century. Yeah, I think that's that's um, one of the things I wanted to um, really elaborate on in the book, um, that even with this, um, you know, as I said, kind of uh, attempt to engage with um, Ethiopia in a concrete way to understand the history of Ethiopia among African Americans, you still have this, um, you know, uh, sort of persistent uh, romanticism around uh, the country. And I think um, the examples of Haiti and Liberia, while, you know, obviously imperfect republics, they're still um, not um, at this time, you know, um, engaging in the sort of imperial expansionism that Ethiopia was. Um, And so um, that's why I wanted to kind of focus on um, uh, the question of empire as it applies to Ethiopia. Um, Whereas, you know, a lot of people were at the time thinking of uh, the defense of Ethiopia as um, an anti-imperialist project. Well, at the same time, um, Ethiopia was, you know, 
um, engaging in a lot of the, um, uh, 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 you know, atrocities that you see um, in, in African colonialism in general. And so um, I, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about that in the book. Um, I one thing I forgot to mention at the top of the the, the interview is that um, I am Ethiopian American. That's another reason why I've been interested in this topic. Um, and so I um, have seen, you know, from family members and friends of the family, how um, Ethiopian Empire, um, it, you know works within the country at you know at, prior to 1974 um when when um Selassie was overthrown but you know that you know my parents grew up in an imperial Ethiopia and so I have this um sort of personal uh connection to um what it meant within the country um to be a subject of Ethiopian empire one of the things that I think um, is really powerful as an anchor um, for that thread of your of your book, that part of your book that you're trying to to kind of focus on with regards to this dualism of Ethiopia, both as a site of anti-imperialism, but one that is an expanding empire, was the way that you used um, these three pivotal emperors um, across the time period in which your 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 study your book. Um, um, focuses on um, Emperor, um, hopefully I'm pronouncing it correctly, T- um, Tudoros, um, Menelik II, and um, Haile Selassie, which probably many more listeners may be familiar with, um, considering he lived into the 20th uh, century. Um, how did you, did you kind of know ahead of time that there were going to be these these anchor points that kind of um, grappling with Ethiopia as a concrete place and an empire um, across the, the period of, of your book's study? No, I didn't actually. That's, it's interesting that you should ask that because um, that sort of um, happened through the writing process. I, I did know that... Um, there were particular battles and um, and uh, wars that I wanted to talk about. So I had this kind of um, military framework that I wanted to think about. Um, and that was one of the uh, interventions that I uh, wanted to make is to kind of go back beyond um, the Battle of Adwa and kind of think about the Anglo-Abyssinian War in the 1860s as um uh, a moment that uh, made Ethiopia visible um, to the rest of the world. Um, but in kind of looking at these military moments, um, I realized that um, these figures, um, the figures of the emperors, um, ended up kind of becoming larger than life. And um, I don't think it's an accident because I think that um that is what a lot of people, a lot of readers at the time would have um, uh, engaged with as a way of understanding what was happening. So I used the example of, um, you know, for example, um, a lot of the uh, military, I'm sorry, uh, political cartoons and caricatures of um, Todros, for example, um, in Punch and um, La Lune. And um, these are uh, ways that 
readers of periodicals, um, uh, you know, basically got this um, journalistic information filtered through these these visual images. Um, And so I did want to kind of talk about um, personalities that um, became important in how people understood Ethiopian empire. And of course, you know, the emperors are, um, uh, they have this sort of um, larger than life uh, way that they color the, the, the way people understand the country. And in, in fact, when we think about Ethiopia, or we try to construct, you know, um, historical uh, narratives, I mean, they they are prominent. You know, we we know those names, or we've heard those names, even if we don't have a full texture um, of their personalities and 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 perhaps their complicated and inconsistent um, renderings within the country at at large. I wanted to um, follow up our conversation about the the origins of this project and, and the way in which you're um, connecting, you know, the concrete Ethiopia um, and African Americans' understandings of it with this this term um, that you use, and it's it's used widely, um, you know, um, with other scholars, but. Perhaps you can help us have a firmer understanding of it. What what should we take by the meaning of Ethiopianism? What 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 is the um, kind of concept really referring to? Yeah. So um, I this is yeah as you point out a term that um, uh, has been used by a lot of scholars and goes back to um, the nineteenth century. And um, I the way that I um, and. I'm understanding it is, uh, well, first of all, let me take a step back and say that I think that the way that it has been typically understood is much more abstracted than the way the, the way I'm trying to use it in the book, right? Because I, I am kind of um, looking at how um, Ethiopia figures um, specifically, as I said, um, in people's uh, understanding of um uh, of it as as a kind of representation for um, uh, 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 a kind of black ideal empire, um, but uh, I think that a lot of um, uh, definitions in the past have kind of seen it as an extension of this um, uh, the 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 Bible um, reference, right? The biblical reference to Ethiopia um, it shall uh, extend its arms. I can't remember now exactly how it goes, but um, you know, that Ethiopia shall, um, shall basically rise again, right? This um, idea of resurrection, I think is, is um, uh, implicit in um, the, the term Ethiopianism, right? That there's this, um, idea that the country or, you know, um, uh, that Ethiopia is, is not, um, what it once was, but it will be again. And I think that's kind of, um, the crux of Ethiopianism. Um, so yeah. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals 
Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Which, I, which, as you point out, I mean, it would be particularly appealing to, um, you know, African-Americans in the United States, you know, um, thinking of uh, Ethiopia as the source of redemption um, for, as you pointed out, sometimes Ethiopian, Ethiopian or Abyssinian as being kind of a generic term for the African race or the black race and in, in, in all its complexities um, for using such such terminology and and therefore it makes sense that that Ethiopia would serve as a model um, if we're thinking about redemption and resurrection in that way. I was hoping that we might um, delve a little bit into your book, just give um, our listeners a, a sense of um, some of the um, discussion that you had there and, and there were so many to choose from. You have these beautiful eight chapters. Um, much of which I think is more appreciated when we when you read it because of the the textual sources that you use and you cover um, a number of kind of well known literary figures whom um, engaged in Ethiopianism whether we we're talking about your chapter on Langston Hughes or Claude McKay or or the even the founder and editor of the Pittsburgh Courier um, African American newspaper um, George Schuyler but I thought that we might want to discuss some lesser known figures. Um, and these are African-Americans who engage with Imperial Ethiopia um, in your ch chapter titled Imperial Embellishment. And I was hoping that you would be able to elaborate a bit about Harry Foster Dean and uh, William Henry Ellis. Some of our listeners may be familiar more with him. There was a recent book about him as uh, the first Black, I guess, uh, man on, on um, Wall Street um, who sought to kind of build their own sort of Ethiopian empires, um, inventing themselves in various ways um, connected to Imperial Ethiopia. Um, I, I thought that that might be a very um, interesting conversation to have you flesh that out a little bit for our listeners. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, I think um, generally I've in, in both of my books, I've been really um, interested in talking about very well-known figures and alongside somewhat neglected figures or maybe even unknown figures. Um, and uh, uh, there are probably writers and, and um, other sort of historical figures even less well-known than Ellis and Dean. Um, as you point out, Ellis did have a, um, a biography written about him um, by Carl Jacoby, um, was it last year or a couple of years ago? Um, so, uh, so I think, you know, there's been a little bit of attention to both of these figures, but, um, but they're still very much, um, under, understudied. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, I have become especially interested in Harry Foster Dean lately. And, um, I think that, um, the next project I work on will 
definitely involve Harry Foster Dean in some way. I kind of, um, in the way that Dunbar was like a kind of hinge figure for me in my first and second books, I see Dean as sort of what's getting me to the third book. Um, fingers crossed. Um, but, uh, Harry Foster Dean was, um, a really fascinating figure who, um, uh, wrote a, uh, an autobiography in the 1920s about a time in his life around the turn of the century when he was, um, uh, traveling around the world, but mainly, um, based in Cape town, um, and, uh, attempting from that vantage point to establish a, what he was calling an Ethiopian empire. So he was, um, using the term Ethiopian in that, um, uh, more general sense of, of meaning African or black empire. Um, but he, he really, um, uh, was he had that as his main goal, and he saw himself as um, somehow ordained to be the one who would um, uh, found this empire. Um, and so, uh, in his time throughout Africa, he um, met with a lot of people from different, um, you know, ethnic groups and tried to forge connections um, bet- between them, um, even if, you know, they, he knew that there was a history of tension between, you know, two groups, he would try to um, uh, f- foster in some way solidarity um, uh, that was racial, right? And so he saw himself as um, being uh you know, being African-American as somebody who could somehow mediate all of these African groups um, and create a place, a territory for um, Black people around the world to consider home. Um, And so he had a lot of, um, you know, um, opportunities, uh, chances to um, try to start this project. Um, And and at every turn, he was basically thwarted. Um, and, um, by the end of the autobiography, he's been thrown out of Africa. (laughs) Um, and so, um, even says at one point that, um, uh, Sir Harry Johnston called him the most quote, most dangerous Negro in the world. Um, so he was perceived, at least he thought that he was perceived as a threat to, um, um, uh, imperialists who felt that, you know, he was, um, uh, in danger of gaining too much power. Um, and so, uh, he had to be thrown, thrown out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, and how does his, um, use of like this kind of concept of imperial Ethiopia differ from someone like William Henry Ellis? Yeah. So, um, one of the the things I talk about in that chapter is that Abyssinia, the country that was known as Abyssinia at the time, is strangely absent from uh, Dean's autobiography, and and uh, you know um, other evidence suggests that he um, did go to Ethiopia, and he um, claimed to you know uh, I think he's, he said he met Menelik, and he. You know, he 
he had connections with Ethiopia beyond just even knowing about the country because he's, you know, he did have a very um, good understanding of Africa for, um, for the time. And so um, I, I think it's a, an, a strange um, omission that he is thinking about um, Ethiopian empire, but doesn't acknowledge that there is and you know an Ethiopian empire already, <laughs> um, uh, and um, so I, I I think that's a that's an important difference um, because Ellis actually did go to Ethiopia as part of um, uh, a U.S. mission and um, brought a treaty to Menelik, met with Menelik. Um, and uh, supposedly, um, although it's not quite clear, um, one of his, his obituaries said that he was uh, he, he wanted to oust Menelik. Um, <laughs> he he also um, later on claimed that Menelik had offered had um, granted him a duchy. So um, he had these very um, uh, clear connections to Abyssinia in a way that Dean, um, if he did have them, obscures them in the autobiography. Hmm. You you point out later in, in the book, and it, and it serves as, a, I guess, a contrast to Dean and Ellis, who, um, whether they directly engage with the real um, Ethiopian empire or not, there, there was definitely a um, a lack of uh, concern, or they they didn't have a problem with the project of an imperial state, even one in which they want to engage with or replicate or or serve as an inspiration. But that African American um, kind of um, openness to embrace of um, imperial Ethiopia changes. Um, later um, in the 20th century, you seem to be suggesting and, and arguing, and perhaps that might be a way to kind of um, conclude that thread of, of your, your book's argument. I was thinking maybe of um, Langston Hughes, who, was, who had a little bit more of a complicated um, set of interactions with Imperial Ethiopia. Yeah, um, I, that is um, what I found in um, reading, that it seemed like something... Um, was becoming a little, it was becoming a little bit more complicated for um, people in the thirties, like writers who um, were um, beginning to see uh, things that uh, maybe were not ideal (laughs) um, in, uh, in Ethiopian empire in this model of Ethiopian empire. Um, And so, yeah, Langston Hughes is for me a figure that um, illustrates this really well um, because you can see the sort of um, uh, complex uh, interactions in his writing where, you know, there are, um, definitely moments where he's he's critical of Haile Selassie, certainly, um, in his poetry. And I, I give the example of when in 1966 he actually goes and, to Ethiopia and um, writes a poem um, and presents it to Haile Selassie and feels really that the whole interaction was so off-putting because it was, um, uh, to him, this kind of... Uh, really disgusting display of um of 
of the imperial. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, I, that's kind of what I um, discovered as I was reading, um, uh, you know, writing from the from the 30s and onward, that it starts to become much more critical of this idea of Ethiopia. Hmm. I was thinking that um, your work, um, particularly where we live here, we work in both of you and you know, both of us work in Maryland. We live and work within this DC Baltimore metropolitan area where we have um, a sizable Ethiopian American community and sizable African American community. Um, how, how do you think um, your book, your work kind of um, showing those historical links of these kind of cultural and literary um, interactions, whether they were imaginary or they were real, um, how do you think this might be received in, in these types of communities where we live? Um, I hope it will be received um, with interest. And I, I've uh, gotten some feedback already from uh well, especially family members, because of course, you know, they want to support me. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I think even um, uh, Ethiopians, Ethiopians and Ethiopian Americans in general who have um, contacted me seem really interested in this topic. Um, I've, I've heard from people who live in Ethiopia too, who have been really um, curious about it. So um and I think, yeah, in the in the um, DC Maryland area, uh, certainly there's a large, um, um, you know, Ethiopian diaspora community, um, and uh, I am really eager for um, the book to end up in the hands of people who live around here, and um, to hear what they uh, what they think. Um, but yeah, no, yeah, I, I certainly I think. Um... You know, I, I think that oftentimes, um, one, in, in the United States publicly, we, we don't um, spend a lot of attention um, understanding the the various interactions between um, continental Africans and, and, and their, their experiences in America um, alongside, um, you know, um, American-born people of African descent. Um, in areas where you do find those two large communities, particularly in recent years, it's often depicted um, fraught, you know, tense. Um, and, and not to say that there are not moments in, you know, in places where that had happened, but I think your book um, allows for um, a longer view and kind of um, an opportunity to kind of have a more expansive, um, wider understanding of different kinds of interactions, um, particularly among um, many of your your the people that you studied were not necessarily able to go to Imperial Ethiopia, but yet they they were very deeply engaged with and, and reading periodicals and you know writing you know fictionalized you know accounts or sometimes what they thought ethnic as you point out ethnographical accounts or plays and and I and I don't I think that that could be a powerful tool in in shaping those types of communities. Um, which don't often have the opportunity to see in, in, in these kinds of lights. Yeah. Uh, thank you for saying that. I, I think, um, uh, you know, certainly from the other, you know, point of view, like you said, of um, Ethiopian Americans that I, I've talked to, 
there's um, at least more, more than a couple of people have expressed surprise to me that there was this level of engagement um, among African Americans that they knew what was happening in Ethiopia in you know the 1860s or 1890s. I think is um, surprising to a lot of Ethiopians who maybe didn't realize that um, you know that there had there was such a um, uh, you know so much. Uh, uh, information out there that there was so much um, media attention to Ethiopia at, th- at these moments, I think, is um, surprising to people. Um, and so um, these connections are very deep and go back such a long time to you know such a long way. Um, I think that's that's easy to forget sometimes that we you know have these sort of interconnected um, con- you know relations. Um, so, yeah. Nadia, I usually conclude my interviews asking about current or future projects. And you did give us a little bit of a hint that you think Harry Foster Dean is it's a, a lynch or kind of going to be like a pinch in your, your next project. But would you like to share with us maybe something, you know, you're currently working on or something that we should look out for in terms of any um, upcoming publications? Well, I mean, one thing that I would really like to do, and it's still, um, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure if it'll be possible, but I'm fingers crossed, is put out a critical edition of Harry Dean's um, autobiography, because I think more people should read it. Um, and so, and it's, it's currently not really easily accessible. Um, I'm also um, working on... Um, future but it's a very, very early stages but I'm, I'm hoping to work on a project that um uh, looks at connection the, the intersections between uh, oceanic studies and black diasporic studies and that's where i think harry dean um will be um an important figure for uh that project so um and in uh, a way that uh i guess is now becoming uh, <laughs> a pattern. I want to look at not just abstractions of the transatlantic, but the actual Atlantic, the actual oceans that he um, traveled, because he talks about, um, uh, well, not just the Atlantic, but um, uh, sailing uh, to the Pacific and, um, and you know, throughout just basically circumnavigating the globe when he was a, a young teenager. Um, and so, um, I think in a lot of literary studies, there can be this sort of, uh, neglect of the actual work of sailors. And, um, that's something that I know that you, uh, from, from the perspective of a historian have worked on, but I, I think, um, what I'd like to do is, is look at literary texts that deal with the ocean. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of, like I said, at the very beginning stages, but that's where I'm hoping to to go next. Oh, no, I'm looking forward to it. I When I read that chapter about Harry Foster Dean, I, I immediately scribbled down the title of his of his text because it's, it's it sounded so fascinating. And, and, and as you point out, um, hasn't quite received the level of attention um, that probably is warranted. So it's exciting to hear about these current projects that you have um, underway. I want to thank you again for this interview with um, the World Affairs Channel. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was great to talk to you. You can find a link to Black Land, Imperial Ethiopianism in African America 
on New Books Network and World Affairs channel. Until next time.